Fifty years ago this month, DFL Governor Wendell Anderson worked with the conservative Minnesota legislature to pass significant fiscal policies that transformed the state's educational system. Though the process required the longest special session in the state's history, the bipartisan effort and the commitment to economic and social equality became known as the Minnesota Miracle. It was a monumental time in Minnesota's history. A 1973 Time magazine cover story heralded Minnesota as the state that works. In today's bitterly partisan political atmosphere, one wonders if a similar miracle could possibly come together again. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at Governor Wendell Anderson's legacy, the Minnesota miracle, and what has happened to the miracle in the ensuing decades. Our guest is Tom Berg, a Minneapolis attorney who served as a state legislator from 1971 through 1978. He is the author of the book, Minnesota's Miracle, Learning from the Government That Worked. We spoke with him in 2016, shortly after his book was published. Tom, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, what was the Minnesota Miracle? The Minnesota Miracle was a piece of legislation that passed in the 1971 session of the legislature when Wendell Anderson was governor. And in those days, you didn't have Republicans and Democrats in the legislature. You had conservatives and liberals. And the conservatives held both the House and the Senate. They were in control of that. And the bill made a huge change in fiscal policy for Minnesota. And what it did was it raised state revenues substantially. 23% was the final uh, legislation of increase in taxes at the state level, but then decreased property taxes throughout the state and distributed that money back to the local units of government and the school districts. And it was such a profound change and so difficult to get done. It was the long, it took the longest special session in the history of the state to get it done, but it got done. And then a group out of Washington said, that was a miracle, just a Minnesota's miracle, and the name stuck. What was then Governor Wendell Anderson's role in passing the legislation that created the Minnesota miracle? He was absolutely key for it because it became a big issue. The property taxes were high, and the fiscal condition of the state became a big issue in the 1970 campaign. And a group called the Citizens League, that's still very active around, had uh, worked hard on this and they came up with a proposal to basically do what the Minnesota Miracle di did. There were different twists, but it came up and in October of that year, there was a Citizens League dinner debate and the two candidates were asked about it and Wendell Anderson, the DFL go governor candidate, said, I support it. Doug Head, the Republican candidate, said, oh, I have serious misgivings about it. And it became the main issue in the campaign. Wendell Anderson won with, I think, 54% of the vote. He had to develop a plan to actually implement it, which was no small task because nobody had really thought about that part of it very much. So he was key to it and he made the proposal and then it took a long, hard battle to get it passed. What were the political and economic circumstances in Minnesota prior to the 1970s that created the need for reform? Well, in the 1960s, the Republicans had control of things, and Harold Lavander was the governor. 
and they had passed a sales tax increase and gave some property tax relief primarily to the business community, but some to the, and that was made permanent, but some to the general homeowner residential uh, property taxes. Wendell Anderson campaigned on that and said that, listen, th those taxes are gonna go back up right away, and they did. And so by the time the election came in, property taxes were a major, a huge issue that led to fiscal things being probably the most important issue in the campaign. Let's talk for a moment about that protracted 1971 legislative session. Obviously a lot of rancor in the legislature, but how did Governor Anderson reach across the aisle and get the cooperation and buy-in from the conservatives? Well, first, Jim, it was a miserable session. I was then a rookie in the minority party in my first year in the legislature. And the session came up and uh, they couldn't get anything passed on that. In those days, you didn't have shutdowns. So they passed everything else, but kind of left that open a little bit about what to do. And the governor called the legislature right back into special session. And then it went back and forth. And eventually the governor said, we're not getting anywhere here. What we're going to do is I'm going to have 10 people come over to the residence, governor's residence, not at the Capitol. And uh, frankly, I think they were trying to keep the media away a little bit and some of the special interest groups probably. But they then had six conservatives and four liberals who met for weeks and months. But meanwhile, the legislature under the Constitution has to meet every three days, and unless both the House and the Senate agrees. Well, and the House in particular would not agree to not meet. They were trying to put the pressure on the governor in particular to back down off of his proposal. And so those of us who weren't members of the 10 committee had to show up at the Capitol every three days and check in and uh, say you were present and then they'd adjourn the session and then three days later you go do it again. It wasn't hard for me, I was from Minneapolis, but the rural people, that was terrible. They had to drive down and there were people bunking in other people's house and sleeping on floors and all sorts of things. But the, uh, eventually, the governor uh, kept pushing, pushing, pushing. There were meetings there. Stanley Holmquist was the Senate majority leader, a conservative then, chaired these meetings. And he would uh, just say, well, okay, I think we've got agreement on that, and he'd move on to another topic. One of the interesting things, Jim, that wouldn't fly in today's world was no minutes were kept of those meetings. And eventually a compromise was reached. The liberals reduced the amount of the state tax increase and agreed that part of it could be covered by a sales tax increase, which helped pick up some conservative support. They put what are called levy limits on the local units of government so they couldn't just go down with the property taxes right away and then raise them back up. They just couldn't do it. And the state has authority to do that. And that picked up some more support and eventually back and forth in the, some very difficult negotiations why a compromise was reached. And in October, the end of October of that year, a final bill got passed that the governor would agree to and the deal was done. Let's talk about that famous 1973 Time Magazine cover that pictured Governor Anderson holding up a fish with the headline, 
the good life in Minnesota. What did this cover and the accompanying article do to boost Minnesota's reputation throughout the country? Oh, I think it was a major uh, coup for Minnesota and certainly for the governor to have that uh, occur. And it was a picture, again, everybody's seen, I think it was August 13th, 1973, in a cover of Time. And the article then did say Minnesota is a state that works that the, uh, the, the, the schools are pretty good, that the business community is good, that they work together, that it's a state with a strong environmental ethic, and all of those kinds of things that help Minnesota, I think, very much nationally. And it was true. Minnesota generally did work much better than things are in today's world. Governor Anderson was described as a Midwest Kennedy. Did his youth and charm contribute to how people viewed the state and its government? Oh, very much so. He and his wife Mary were both very photogenic folks. Wendy had been an Olympic hockey player. He played for the Gophers and then as an Olympic hockey player, a silver medal team. And uh, he had a style that was very good. And one of the things that uh, I think of interest, and particularly in today's world where you have all this gridlock and people just aren't getting together, was Wendy and Mary put on a series of dinners over at the, at the governor's residence. And they'd have 20, 25 legislators at a time and their spouses would come over there for dinner. And there was no real politics talked. It was an elegant dinner, a social evening, the toasts were kept short and everybody left with a picture with the legislators and the governor and his wife. And uh, those kinds of things really helped get a bipartisan feel to things. They, they were, you know, we had our rancorous moments, big time. But his style and relationship building was, I think, very important. Minnesota became known as the state that works. What was your experience in politics like in the 1970s? Did you think at that time that politics really did work? Yes, I, I was extremely frustrated during that special session we talked about because I said I didn't get elected just to do this stuff, go over and check in and check out. But then in the 72 election, for the first time in statehood, the Democrats took control of both the House and the Senate, and they had control of the governorship. And that had never happened with all three uh, units of government together there. And then there was this explosion of legislation in the 1970s that had been kind of pent-up demand that uh, came out. And environmental things, the Minnesota miracle with its redistribution of money to local units of governments and school districts in a much more fair manner than had ever happened before. Consumer protection, the minimum wage went up. There were, and it was done on a bipartisan basis, almost all of it. We passed the country's first major campaign financing and ethics bill. We had some sensible gun control legislation that eventually passed. And it was a state that worked. And it was fun to be a part of it as a, as a legislator. Tell us how the Minnesota Miracle's fiscal policies benefited the state, in particular with regard to education. The money that came into the state then had to be redistributed, redistributed is what I'm trying to say, out to the, the school districts. And uh, 
That was done with some very complicated formulas. But in the past, so much of how school funding was done in Minnesota depended on the property tax base of each individual school district. So if you happen to live in a community that had a taconite mine or an iron ore mine uh, or a big shopping center or some other entity that generated a lot of property tax revenues, it was fairly easy to have pretty good schools that were well funded. If on the other hand you were in a bedroom community or some a poor agricultural area that wasn't very good land, you had real trouble raising enough money for schools. And all of those factors were taken into consideration in the distribution of the money from the state back to the schools so that it was much more equal. And that uh, led to, uh, I think, a greater compliance with the state constitutional requirement about a general system of education for the state. There were a lot of lawsuits in the country at that time, Jim, that were being brought that said the states weren't funding education very well. And the Minnesota Miracle really spread that money out and made schools much, much better. You can talk to teachers and educators at the time. Uh, it just worked a whole lot better. Stanley Holmquist, the Senate Majority Leader that I, I talked about earlier, was a former superintendent of schools. And I think that helped get his support quite a bit. He understood how this worked. A major and very popular component of the Minnesota Miracle legislation was property tax reform. In particular, the so-called, at the time, circuit breaker or the property tax rebate. That continues today. How did that particular component in the legislation come about? Well, the circuit breaker came in a little bit later after the Minnesota Miracle. It wasn't really part of that. But then it became clear that property taxes are a regressive tax. The economists use that term. And that you, you can measure what percentage of your income you have to pay for property taxes. And people on fixed incomes, retirees, and all pay a significant portion of their usually smaller incomes for property taxes. And people were then, as they started creeping up again, they would be taxed out of their homes, literally, they couldn't do it. And so there was developed a mechanism to try to reflect, uh, break the circuit of all these things went, how you would uh, show the correlation between those two taxes, income taxes and, say, and uh, property taxes. And the formulas were developed to do that. And that, that is living to this day. What happened to the Minnesota miracle? How did the legislative priorities start to change? Well, after uh, there was a, uh, what I called the, there was the Minnesota miracle in 71. There was also the Minnesota massacre in 1978 when the Republicans won the governorship and both the United States Senate seats and the state auditor's office. And they uh, uh, got control of the, the House, or was it, it was an even uh, split on the House. Anyways, there was a major Republican uh, victory that year. And then um, governor Cui became governor and they started making some changes in the tax policies of things. And they tried to inflate, uh, use the inflation ratio for um, uh, taxes, but not for the, the spending side of things. And it just didn't work. The, the two parts didn't come together very well. And so it started to run fiscal problems and Governor Cui had to call several special sessions to balance the budget because the states have to balance their budget by the state constitution. The federal government doesn't, but the states do. 
And so that caused problems as time went on, and then they chipped away at, at various things. Although the basic concept is still in place, and I think that's an important thing to remember, and it's a big part of Wendy Anderson's legacy, of the idea of revenue sharing between the state and local units of government. And you can play with the formulas, tinker with them various ways, but there's still important uh, formulas there and an important mechanism to help fund both municipalities and counties as well as school districts. Sometimes the, the local government aid, as it's called, or LGA, gets lost in the shuffle with talking about school districts. And then there's fights about where the aid goes from the state level to what communities and more than a little bit of politics gets played there. By virtually all accounts, Wendell Anderson was the consummate retail politician. He was widely popular in the state. He, I believe, won election. He won every county in Minnesota. Just a phenomenal He, he did in the 74 election. You're right. He made one very fatal political error, however, and that occurred in 1976 when then-Senator Walter Mondale became vice president with President Jimmy Carter. And he arranged a situation where um, Governor Rudy Perpich, then the lieutenant governor, would appoint him to the vacant Senate seat once he resigned his governorship. Uh, it did not go over well with the electorate, and uh, many people have said it contributed highly to the 1978 Minnesota massacre. How could such a savvy politician make a miscalculation of that magnitude? A good question. I spent quite a bit of time kind of researching that and talking to as many people as I could about that when I wrote the book about these things. And I think it came down to Wendy Anderson loved uh, public service, and he was very good at it, and he liked it a lot. And I think he realized that the shelf life of a United States senator is longer than the shelf life of a governor. And I think that's probably true in today's world, too. The problems the governor faces are a little more direct and in-your-face to the voters in a state than a U.S. senator is. And he, he liked public life. And he thought he, he could uh, withstand any problems that uh, would come because of this appointment. He obviously did not. But he, uh, he thought about it. He was advised about it. There were only a very handful of people who would ever have because I had themselves appointed uh, to the Senate like that and survived the following election. One of them, I remember, was Happy Chandler out of uh, Kentucky. Uh, but So he was aware of it, and I think just decided that, no, I think I can do this. I'm very popular. It's going well. And the Republicans did a very good job politically of exploiting that. And they would point out that uh, we've got all these people in office uh, who have just been appointed. They didn't, weren't elected. We're supposed to elect people in this country. We got, we got a United States Senator. Rudy Purbridge was never elected governor. He had been the lieutenant governor. He then became governor. And they exploited that a lot. And I think, Jim, there's a real visceral feeling of people that we elect people to office in this country, a high office, and we don't appoint them. And that's, he violated that feeling. What do you think Governor Anderson's legacy and the larger legacy of the Minnesota miracle is or will be? 
Oh, I think Governor Anderson's legacy will be that he was a wonderful governor who got things done. He was very competent and got a lot of things done, including the, the, probably especially the Minnesota miracle. And he understood fiscal policy and he understood the role of local units of government. And I think that's very important. Most people don't. Uh, most governors don't really get it. Wendy really got it. And hence the, that redistribution of the money in a fair, proper way was critical and made the state work, then that will live on. He also was a strong environmentalist, and there were so many environmental uh, pieces of legislation that he proposed and were passed in the 70s that will live on. He stopped the dumping of tailings in Lake Superior. That was a big deal at the time. Grant Merritt was the head of the, the PCA. Uh, Environmental Quality Council was set up, Environmental Policy Act, the list goes on and on. So it was a, a major, major player in that and he did things in housing and health care and uh, just a long list of things. So he's a governor, I think, who got things done. Do we still think of the 1970s as a time when state government worked or do we now see that perhaps the state worked only for some of its citizens and not all of them? No, in the 70s, I don't think that it did. I think it was a state that worked, and we brought up with that school financing so many things. But if you're talking about today now, uh, you can sure make the, the case that something isn't working very well in today's world. Uh, that's certainly true. But the, in fact, the thrust of the Minnesota miracle was to make it work for everybody. Those poor school districts, those kids coming out of those districts where there wasn't a property tax base, cities that couldn't do their water treatment plants and all, that was a big part of the Minnesota miracle to make it work for everybody, rural as well as urban. There's always been a rural-urban split in the legislature and always will be, I suspect. But uh, Wendy managed to bridge that quite well. With some of the largest racial disparities in the country, do we need a Minnesota miracle part two? And if so, what might that look like? Well, uh, it may take a miracle. It seems like, uh, at least at times these days, with uh, the, um, uh, the, the racial um, breakdown that seems to have been happening, particularly uh, currently with uh, law enforcement issues and all. Uh, I, I don't think you could have a a uh, one piece of one piece of legislation that would solve all those problems. Uh, fiscal things are certainly very important, and adequate funding for schools, for police forces, for prisons, for the whole justice system is, is a part of uh, this whole thing, and you could handle some of that. But I think there's just a much broader cultural and societal change that's happened in the intervening years since the Minnesota miracle and now that is a much in a way a more complex problem and it's going to take uh, a lot of work on a lot of different uh, levels to do it. One of the big things though that I think is important is if you could have a miracle part two to educate more people about the importance of local governments and that it isn't just whether you vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton this election. It's who you vote for your city council, who you vote for mayor, who you vote for county commissioner, 
all of those things, because that's where so much, particular now law enforcement is set. I'm a former United States attorney here and, and I've worked on some of those issues. And you don't immediately run to Washington uh, with, with all of these complaints. It's got to be solved some under our system of federalism at the state and local levels. Tom Berg is a Minneapolis attorney who served as a Minnesota state legislator from 1971 to 1978. He's the author of the book, Minnesota's Miracle, Learning from the Government That Worked. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having the interview.